ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like the colour pink, socks or umbrellas. Or pink stinking ice rinks. I like that sort of alliterative sound there. Or, yes, no, maybe, the history of indecision. It has to be done, Sam. That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> You did the. We've got to, We keep coming up with these really good ideas and not doing them. Um, I know. Va- vagueness was the one we came up with the vagueness. other week. I, I um, had a vague idea about vagueness, but I also want to do kissing. I've been reading Karen Harvey's excellent volume on the history of the kiss, and would love to do that. Okay. Very Sounds clever. Good to me. Sounds good to me. But we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew? For example, who knew that the history of applause is all about popularity in ancient Rome, rules in the British House of Commons, great speeches, Stalinist Russia, why Henry James is an infinitely better novelist than playwright, and of course, much thanks to the NHS. Or that the history of invisibility is all about Tudor spies, oranges, invisible ink, Erasing the past and the absence of history. It sounds a bit worthy, that one, doesn't it? <laughs> it was really interesting, though. That's part of our kids' series we're doing. It is. Um, the man sitting opposite me... Well, he's not, actually, because we're the other side of our home city of Exeter. The man not sitting opposite me, he, he's someone who really does admire the view of history. It's <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Hello. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me because he's in his shed across town by the railway track. He is the historical version of the three tenors, all combined and wrapped (laughs) up into one. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Do you like what I I did there with that? I did, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a tetrarchy of tenors. Mm. Mm. I love that, a triptych of tenors. (laughs) (laughs) Right, we are, it's slightly more abstract that one, but uh, we are doing the history of balconies today um, because one of the truly majestic things that has come out of lockdown is the wonderful stories of people engaging with the world around them from their balconies. Um, We have the uh, the first one I saw was um, the truly brilliant Beatrice Barodia, who's a kind of blues soul singer. And she did a balcony from her, uh, sorry, she did a concert from her balcony in Madrid. There's some wonderful, wonderful stuff done by artists in Berlin. Did you see this, James? No. You, no oh, no, no. God, it was cool. Using their balconies to display all sorts of artworks um, inspired by lockdown and primarily made by whatever anyone had in their house. There was a lot of loo roll involved. <laughs> uh, but they also, um, it wasn't just in one location. They'd done a kind of a... Uh, a, a sort of an online guide to Berlin where you could see these artworks on these balconies. I absolutely loved, the, loved those. Uh, there was a, a very famous Italian tenor um, in, singing singing um, from his balcony in Florence. And, um, and then the one that really caught my eye was um, this guy in, in Paris who ran, who ran a marathon on his 23-foot balcony. He did 26.2 miles on a 23-foot balcony. Wow. It's brilliant, isn't it? The, um, and all sorts of people have been getting up to all sorts of things because during lockdown, people without gardens that have balconies 
are getting outside, getting fresh air. They are communicating with people. They are expressing themselves. It's lightening the mood. It's entertainment. But the, one of the funniest ones that I saw was a woman. I can't remember what country it was in, but she started singing uh, and did woo! And then some guy on the other side of this block of flats just shouts, like that. I'm not sure how that will how that will come across in the podcast, but literally just roared. I, I think he just got so fed up with the number of people doing this. But it is, but it is a it's a brilliant thing that we're experiencing at the moment. This sort of the way in which the balcony is taking on a new meaning. I read in preparation for this an article in the online periodical Domus, and it's entitled "A Brief History of the Balcony from Ancient Persia." to COVID-19 pandemic. And it's by two Italians, Carlotta and Matteo Origoni. And they are two designers, though they're, they're architectural designers. And I, I just wanted to read the opening because it just, it was so beautifully written. Whether it be a handcraft, a location or a special place, as it has always represented a great place for various social interactions, the balcony is the protagonist of these sad times of quarantine, forced confinement and disturbing hashtags. And so, when faced with the impossibility of escaping, we take refuge in that privileged space precisely because it is a liminal space on the edge of the domestic walls, the only space that now allows us to keep in touch with the outside, with other people, even though from afar while staying inside our own home. And it is from here, while standing still, immobile, confined, that we participate in the greatest challenge that Europe has faced since the Second World War. And those who do have a balcony, they enjoy it as they probably never have before, while those who don't have a balcony want one more than anything. Isn't that a beautiful start to an essay on the yeah, history of the balcony? fantastic. Well done, you guys. I, re I really love that. And um, it kind of really hits the nail on the head, I think, looking into this. The balcony, just to say, it's a, it's a classic example for histories of the unexpected, where I just suddenly sat there and thought, oh, we'll do the history of balconies, with, with zero yes. idea <laughs> of, of what we would do or how you actually do the history of balconies. And, and it's got a fascinating history. I mean, it's, I don't think I've actually done an episode of Histories of the Unexpected where I've been bored with what I've, what I've discovered. But the history of balconies is truly brilliant and that, they really hit the nail on the head with it being this liminal area. It's, it's, it's kind of in the home, but it's also kind of not in the home. Uh, and that means architects have been fascinated, so have historians, so have art historians for, for generations. It's a, it's a, a really rich and, and fascinating history, which I think we will dive into, James. How yeah, do you want to start? Definitely. Well, I think just exploring the kind of different our usual the sort of brainstorm about how you look at it i mean okay. if you if you think about it just architecturally it is a it's it's a, a sort of platform on a building supported by columns or brackets and it's usually above the ground floor and it's sort of as they say in that opening to the article it's it's within the home but also it's quite public and so you can be you can see you can view things so it, it's it's interesting there the balcony is about being seen as well. It's about communicating with a crowd, whether it be the Pope or whether it be royalty. So, for example, a newly elected Pope goes out onto the balcony after he's been elected after the conclave. 
There are balconies in churches for singers, balconies in banqueting halls. Um, and then there are balconies for royalty. Um, there are theatre balconies. Um, so it, it's connected to ceremony, uh, to hierarchies of power. It's about status, connected to pride. So balconies are status symbols. So I think we can look at it in all kinds of ways. I just jotted down an idea which I haven't actually explored, which has oh. really annoyed me. Um, minstrel galleries in mm. castles and in halls where you, yes. you, I mean, it's really important. So um, you've got often the, the extra, extra added height there as well. It's all, it's all, a lot of this is to do with height. It's removing yourself from what's low and beneath you and, and raising yourself above, making yourself visible. So um, I've always wanted to do the history of height, but this is yes. an, an impor important part of it. But um, minstrels and musicianship is something that, and, that uh, can be... Uh, the Lord's Room in the Globe Theatre. So the Globe Theatre is Shakespeare's theatre in London on the South Bank, on Bankside there, that was reconstructed uh, in the, the sort of late 20th century. Um, um, and no, late tw late um, late twenty first century it would be, um, and during homeschooling and lockdown, um, I got out from my daughter's bookshelf something that she had been given uh, about three or four years ago by a, a very lovely uncle. He'd given her a model of the globe that you make entirely out of cardboard, and it's all cut out. And I made it with them the other day, and it's beautiful, three D. And one of the interesting things is, is above the stage, right at the back of the theatre, where the minstrels sit, so where the musicians sit, in the middle of those is what's known as the Lord's Room. And the Lord's Room was right at the, right at the top there. So not only would you, as, a, as an elite person in Elizabethan and Jacobean England, be able to get a great view, although probably not as good as the groundlings who were standing in the yard, but you would be able to see from above and also probably get the best, um, the best sort of sound that you could get so you could hear what the actors were saying. But also, because you were right up there, it was about status and it was about the Lords being seen to be at the theatre and being able to be there to be viewed and not to be among the hoi polloi, the people who were paying for the cheap seats or even the groundlings who were going in uh, and stepping all over their peanut husks. <laughs> so there, the Lord's, the Lord's Room at the, at the Globe Theatre, connected, of course, to homeschooling. Um, I've just been doing some recording, um, some filming just before shutdown for um, a programme on Sky, which will be about VE Day. Ooh, so my lovely. initial thoughts went to uh, May 1945. And actually, James, we should do uh, an unexpected history of VE Day. Oh, I'd love to do let's, that. Let's put that on the list. Everyone get in touch with some ideas for the unexpected history of VE Day. Um, and uh, it struck me that we could do, we could look at... Well, certainly VE Day is a good starting point because Churchill gave a very, very famous speech from the balcony of the Ministry of Health. Um, and I've actually found a little bit of audio of it. It's really interesting. You ready? Yes. And now, oh, what wonderful luck. At this moment, at this moment, how wonderful Mr Churchill has come out onto the Ministry of Health balcony. Now Mr Churchill stands on the balcony of the Ministry of Health. He's wearing his boiler suit, the famous boiler suit that he's made so wonderful. And he had the audacity, shall I say, to put on his head his famous black hat. Nobody can say that it goes with a boiler suit, 
but you heard what a cheer it raised from the crowd. He stands now in the floodlights, and he's giving the victory sign for all his might from the flooded balcony. This is your victory. Victory of the cause of freedom in every day. So there we have that wonderful moment with Churchill appearing on the balcony and talking. I, I think it's sort of spine tingling and I love the way that the crowd are actually interacting with him. And if you look at a, a transcription of that speech, there's, there is lots, of, um, lots more crowd interaction. There we stood alone. Did anyone want to give in? The crowd then shouts, no! Were we downhearted? The crowd shouts, no! The lights went out and the bombs came down, but every man, woman and child in the country had no thought of quitting the struggle. London can take it. So he came back after long months from the jaws of death, out of the mouth of hell while all the world wondered. When shall the reputation and faith of this generation of English men and women fail? I say that in the long years to come, not only will the people of this island, but of the world, wherever the bird of freedom chirps in human hearts, look back to what we've done and they will say, do not despair, do not yield to violence and tyranny, march straight forward and die if need be unconquered. That's a fairly powerful speech there. And it does make you think of these different leaders in Europe and in America and in Russia giving speeches, and they were all, at certain times, doing it from balconies, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, Mussolini was one of the firsts to have done this, and he spoke many times from, I don't know if you, you've been to Rome, haven't you, James? I have, I love Rome, it's one of my favourite cities. Have you been to the Piazza Venezia? Yeah, I big have, pub, yes. Big public square? Yes. Well, that's where Il Duce, Mussolini's offices were. And there's a big window there with, with a very old, beautiful balcony. And it's there where he gave some of his most famous rabble-rousing speeches. It's there where he um, declared the, the, uh, the Italian Empire in 1936. And then again, the declaration of war on France and Britain in 1940. It's quite interesting, actually. Everyone, everyone knew that this was where Mussolini had done all of his his um, politicking. But there was uh, uh, not much desire to to look after the location of history in the aftermath of the war. And it's only recently that that room with that balcony has been reopened again to the public. So now you can go in and you can see it. But for a long time, it was something that was slightly swept under the carpet. So we've got Mussolini doing it. And Here's a little thing which I love. It's one of the things I love most about being a historian. So you come up with something you want to research, like Mussolini's balcony in Rome. And I found a, uh, something in the archives of the Imperial War Museum. And it's, uh, it's an audio file 
to it, the object description here says it's a British war correspondence commentary on activities taking place on Benito Mussolini's balcony in Rome on the 5th of June 1944, which sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, what's great about this is that you can't listen to it online. So it's one of the it really brought me back to my, uh -huh. my time as being a PhD student where you'd find something and you go, oh, this is absolutely brilliant. I bet it's going to help me with my research, with my understanding of the past. And you go and you finally listen to it. And I've had so many moments like that in my life as a historian where, where history has become hugely exciting. And so this is one of them. So if I'm ever in the Imperial War Museum or if anyone is nearby in London, please go and please listen to this and let us know what it's like. The, the third character, of course, we should talk about is Hitler. Now, Hitler had a really interesting relationship with, with balconies that changed. And this is all brought to light by the mem memoirs of Dr. Albert Speer, published in 1970. He was one of Hitler's principal architects who he worked with. Now, it goes back to 1933 here. So this is when Hitler has just become chancellor. And there is a window on the second floor of the of the chancellor's office building in Wilhelmsplatz. And during this period, so Hitler's rise to power, you'd often get a crowd spontaneously gathering, demanding to see the Fuhrer, demanding to to have some kind of contact with him out of his window. And he got a bit fed up with it and he doesn't he doesn't like it anymore. And what he wants is a balcony because he, he refuses to lean out of the window. He finds it quite demeaning. He's very conscious of being seen. So they do design him a balcony. Um, now, there is some interesting showreel of him trying to give public speeches outside the window before he's got the balcony. And he looks really awkward trying to do this leaning out. And we know from Spear that that was the one of the things he said he didn't want to do. He didn't want to be very mobile. He wanted to be standing upright to deliver his speeches to the crowd. So they create him a balcony, which he then uses and other high ranking members of the Nazi party use for, for very many years. But what then changes is is that there isn't this natural spontaneity of crowds wanting to see Hitler as there was in 1933 and it means the Nazis have to organize and generate crowds cheering everything becomes much more much more structured and much more false and much more fake which I think is fascinating mm. and at the same time when there are the occasional instances of there being spontaneous crowds demanding to see him on his balcony, he gets really cross with people in his office saying, don't bother me with that. I don't want to do it anymore. So Hitler's got this changing relationship with his balcony, with his desire to be seen as the war progresses. Um, and in the end, he, he has. There's this really key moment as well with that particular balcony, which was once the the site of his really powerful early speeches, then becomes barricaded and used as a defensive position in 1945 by the German troops who are fighting against the Red Army. So I love the fact that Hitler himself has a changing relationship with his balcony, with his need to be seen and then and then recoiling against it and not wanting to be bothered by the people. Um, who he's, he is, you know, a, a trying to serve. And then also the fact that the balcony itself changes, changes in use 
from being a platform, a theatre stage for Hitler to being a defensive position. So there you are. There's a little mini history of balconies in Second World War, which I've, I've absolutely loved and I want to do more about. We should write that up as a little chapter in a book, Sam. I think that's brilliant. The balcony and, and World War Two. It makes me think we should have done it in our... Histories of the Unexpected World War Two book. That's exactly what I thought. But we did oh. one on arches, which is equally as interesting. We did. Um, I love that idea of balconies and politics and propaganda. Balconies as this, as this stage from which or great orators can speak to the masses. And it's very, it's very hierarchical. So you have the leader, you have the dictator preaching to the people. It's very similar to the idea of a, of a pulpit. I love that idea. But I take that and I raise it one further, Sam Willis. Uh, <laughs> royal balconies. Yeah. Royal balconies after we weddings and, and coronations and all sorts of things are always the place in Buckingham Palace. The royal family goes out onto the balcony and they're there to be greeted by the public. Now, they are... They are inaudible. So they are not like Hitler. They're not like Churchill. They're not like Mussolini giving these sort of high-blown rhetorical speeches. They are simply there to be seen and to be adored and to wave at the crowd. However, there is a hidden history here that has captured what they were saying on these royal balconies <laughs> when they brilliant. were speaking. I knew you'd love this. I knew you'd love this. Because newspapers and TV stations are so obsessed with the British royal family I'm talking about here that they want to know precisely what they are saying to each other on these occasions. And doing a little bit of research on this, I found some lip-reading that had been done by a professional lip reader, a woman called Tina Lannin, who was born deaf, but who they was used by the American media to look at the entire content of the royal wedding between William and between Kate and has basically produced a transcript, not only <laughs> on the balcony, but also throughout the day. Um, and one of my favourites is when they are um, when they're leaving um, the the church. Um, the Queen turns to Prince Philip and and says something like, "I thought they were taking the small coach," <laughs> and he says it went very well. But anyway, there are we know exactly what they were saying on the balcony. And, and if you've ever spent time looking at what's going on on the royal balcony, uh, part of it seems to be choreographed, but also. There is a sense that certainly the young royals, the page boys and the bridesmaids are actually having quite a good time there and, uh, you know, and are sort of messing around. And anyway, I'll just read you some um, some examples of this. So this is Kate and William's wedding. So William. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people down there. And then he says to the page boys, I know, but look up there as well to his bride. He says, OK, look at me. Let's kiss. OK, so he's sort of orchestrating that. And then William William shouts across the balcony, Harry, your go. And uh, and Kate Middleton then says, what's next? And William says they want more time, I think. So they, they, this idea that they're going to have to stay out there. And William then shouts across the balcony to Camilla. You could have brought up and then the lip reader couldn't quite make it out as well. So you can insert your own sort of your own words into that. And. Camilla then replies, oh, very heavy. And William then, William then says, 
Just do a bit of everything. Do you like the balloons? It's, and then it, they're unclear. They go up in the air. And Kate Middle goes, look at these people. And William says, I want to see the plane. I think I'm... And then they don't know. William then says to Harry, OK. And then William to the page boys, to stop them coming in here, to stop them coming in this side. I mean, it's hard. William to Kate Middleton, one more. And the couple kiss for a second time. And that's it. Come on. And then they've overheard one of the little uh, page boys, um, one Tom Pettifer, who turns to William Lowther Pinkerton and the two boys uh, are up on the balcony and sum it up. It's all good fun being up here with the royal family, they say. <laughs> so there we are. The, the, these, the, the sort of the backstory, the private life of these public balcony scenes. It's brilliant, that. And it does... Um... It comes to this whole idea of being so visible on your balcony and, and, and being careful of your appearance and careful of how you behave and what you do and how that is different to what's actually going on inside your head or, or physically inside your house, just, you know, inches away from the balcony itself. Yes. Hmm. We don't have a balcony, but we have been using the patio. And I have, a new, I have a new fire pit uh, that arrived and um, I've been uh, sitting out in the evening, uh, relaxing a little... Uh, with the family, enjoying a, 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 a beer or a glass of wine and um, nice. and just relaxing on the balcony. But of course, in secluded back garden. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. It's very nice. But where are we going to go next? Uh, well, I've got, I've got um, several interesting things which are going to come out in a sort of big jumble, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's OK. Yes. Um, so do do feel free to interject if I touch on something that you were going to talk about anyway. Okay. Um, one of the first things, first things I discovered in looking at balconies is that the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet is is not a real thing. It doesn't exist. Did you come across this? I was going to talk about that as well, but let's do it together. No, I tell yes. you, well, let's do it together. Um, but I mean, or you can you can start if you'd like. No, no, or... you start. I was going to say something completely different about it, about how it's been misunderstood, but in a different way. Okay, um, well, um, th there is no word for balcony in Romeo and Juliet. Balconies didn't exist at the time that Shakespeare wrote the play, essentially, in, in, in terms of the personal balconies in England that you might suspect. And it's really interesting how this trope of uh, Juliet being, uh, being there, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Um, they've even, even made a kind of a fake balcony in Verona. So if you go to Verona, you can, you can reenact this scene you can be Romeo, you can be Juliet. Um, but the, the actual scene doesn't exist. Uh, Shakespeare wrote of Juliet being by a window, yes. which is really interesting. And if um, anyone's interested in the history of windows, then uh, do please listen to our podcast on the history of windows. Yes, um, the, stage, the stage direction uh, is Juliet appears above at a window. So no mention of balcony at all. No. Um, the stage scene actually comes from another playwright entirely, someone called Thomas Otway. And he wrote a play in 1679 called The History and Fall of Gaius Marius. And what that does is it, it grafts dialogue and characters and a lot of the plot from Romeo and Juliet into a different play, which is one about uh, Roman military and political struggle. And it's in that that he specifically places this scene on a balcony. That idea is then retained throughout the mid-18th century by Garrick, 
um, with his his theatre in Drury Lane when he does a, a, a mid-18th century revival of the play Romeo and Juliet. And since then, it's become it's become sort of a common understanding of what happened, but it wasn't in the original play. No. Um, funny that you talk about Romeo and Juliet because I, I was going to talk about this and my wife and I are both home uh, working at the same time at the moment. Uh, she is was actually preparing to teach online Romeo and Juliet this morning. And I said we were going to be recording something on balconies. And I said we're doing, we're going to talk about Romeo and Juliet. And she said you must mention the misunderstanding, the common misunderstanding of this scene, where it's, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Because most people think that this is, where are you, Romeo? She's looking out of her window slash balcony, asking where he is. But in fact, it's not. She's talking about why is he named Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or... If thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet, which is her name. She's, Mon she's Capulet, he's Montague. And then Romeo aside, shall I hear more or shall I speak at this? And then Juliet, tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? Is it nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man? Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell so sweet. In other words, what you've got is these rival families, the Montagues and the Capulets. And when she hears that he is, you know, he, he is from a rival family, she can't quite equate his name with him. So the name becomes almost irrelevant to her because like a rose, a rose would be a rose, even if it weren't called a rose. It would smell as sweet. Romeo would be as lovely and lovable, uh, even though he is called a name that she is not supposed to like. So there we are. A little bit of little bit of lit crit schooling for us. There. Very good. I absolutely love that. I mean, what I think is interesting is the the 17th century responses to balconies. Here is um, mm. here is an account of someone who'd been on the continent about a decade and a half after Romeo and Juliet is first performed. Um, so this is in 1608, 1608, and <laughs> the title of his, of his um, pamphlet's brilliant. Coriat's crudities, hastily gobbled up in five months' travel in France, Savoy, Italy, Risha commonly called the Greasons country, Helvetia alias, alias Switzerland, some parts of high Germany and the Netherlands, and it goes on and on and on. Anyway, he writes this. I noted another thing in these Venetian palaces, and it is very little used in any other country that I could perceive in my travels, saving only in Venice and other Italian cities. Somewhat above the middle of the front of the building, or a little beneath the top of the front, they have right opposite unto their windows a very pleasant little terrace that jutteth or butteth out from the main building. The edge whereof is decked with many pretty little turned pillars, either of marble or free stone, to lean over. These kind of terraces or little galleries of pleasure serve only for this purpose, that people may from that place, as from a most delectable prospect, contemplate and view the parts of the city around them. Now, several years later, another Englishman, Henry Wotton, does a treatise on the elements of architecture, and he says there is no habitations less privacy than those of the Italians. So what's there? 
clicking on here, they're really getting is this sense that the balcony is somewhere where people can be viewed from. It's something we mentioned right at the beginning. But in this period, that's a hugely important thing. And it actually becomes perceived by the English as a place particularly of sexual display for English women. And the balcony so becomes quite almost risque having one. They certainly see the Italians as being this way. And that made me think about other types of balconies. So you've got this very open balcony with people willing and wanting to put themselves on display, which at the time really, really is quite quite punchy, isn't it? Putting yourself yeah, on display yeah. in public like that. It makes, it makes me think of Goya's famous painting from the early 1800s, Mayors on a Balcony. So you've got these courtesans, or these sort of prostitutes, uh, oh. who are pictured, displayed, you know, very, very sort of alluringly dressed in fine dresses with 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 veils sort of part covering their eyes. And in the background, you've got two rather sinister looking men who were their their pimps or, or maybe their customers. But the idea is that they are there. They are on display to be seen in a kind of erotic sort of um, erotic manner. Yeah, no, it, it's fascinating. And what's important about it is it's the absolute opposite of the type of balconies that you see in Islamic architecture. Yes. Um, and what struck me about this, my, my dad used to live in Malta. So when I was a kid, we used to go on holidays in Malta. And Maltese balconies are particularly notable for having a very Islamic architectural style. And what I'm talking about here is a notable closed off balcony, very ornate lattice work, timber work with a balcony jutting out from the side of the building. But it means that you can't see who is in the balcony. There are very famous examples of this. If you just Google the balconies of Malta, is the place I started off. But you can also Google the balconies of Lima in Peru because there are there are many there as well. Now, this gets us onto all sorts of fascinating things. So why are there Islamic style balconies in Lima and Malta? And, and the answer is Spain. The, the connecting thing here is Spain. So to understand what's going on here, you need to understand the Moorish invasion of Spain, 8th, 9th centuries, and the um, huge impact of Moorish architecture on 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 Spain and everything which came under Spanish power, Peru being one of them, which is why they're in Lima. And they're also why they're in Malta as well and why they've been preserved. The Lima ones are interesting because they are not as old as you might think. So that was Spanish from the mid 16th century, but it suffered a catastrophic earthquake in 1746 um, and a, a, a subsequent tsunami on the, the a port of Calao nearby. One account claimed that if the most astute man attempted to create the perfect calamity, he could not have imagined the horrors inflicted on Lima. Estimates of the number of dead varied from 1,200 to 6,000 out of a population of just 55,000. So there's absolutely tons of them. There's another description here. Of all earthquakes which have happened since their first conquest, so far at least as hath come to our knowledge, we may with truth affirm that none ever broke out with such astonishing violence, or hath been attended with so vast a destruction as that which happened lately in this capital. And yet another, one of the most dreadful perhaps that ever befell this earth since the general deluge. So the Lima ones are fascinating, but you need to bear in mind that the Lima ones were built around the 1740s, late 17, 
from the after the earthquake in 1746 to 1750 and a lot of the early architecture which would also have been characterized by these closed off Islamic style balconies are not there so they're not as old as you might suspect possibly is not as old as the Maltese ones but they're very very distinctive they're cared for they're looked after and the key thing about them is that particularly women can go into this space in the house and they can observe the world they can see the street passing beneath them the bustle of everyday life but from a position of complete privacy so without being seen themselves hmm. excellent well where do we go from there i've got one more fascinating one Are you okay. ready for it i'll do yes. it quickly have you got any more i've got one more which is go connected on. to well it's the sort of the opposite of the, the sort of public um, speeches that we talked about, the balcony being this sort of stage. And the, it's, the, it's the opposite of that. And it's about assassination of people when they are on balconies. So famously, Martin Luther King uh, on the 4th of April, 1968, at 6.05 in the evening, was shot dead when he was standing on a balcony outside his second floor room at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. So he was he was there in public and was shot. And I imagine that all sorts of people, you know, all sorts of public figures who have been assassinated were are in public settings like that. Or people, snipers setting themselves up in balconies to shoot people. So it's the sort of it's the opposite of sort of being in control of it as a public mouthpiece. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Well, that, my last one is uh, being inspired. James has got me watching uh, Fowder on Netflix. Oh, <laughs> I have. We we speed watched. We binge watched the third season, and I am now waiting for a year for this to come on. It is the best, 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 best show on TV at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. So it's on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, and it it is truly brilliant. Did you know that a lot of it was filmed in Tel Aviv? I'm not sure why that would no. be surprising. A lot of it is filmed in Tel Aviv. And um, I, I've become slightly obsessed with, with this part of the world I really don't know very much about. And I came across this article called The Balconies of Tel Aviv, Cultural History and Urban Politics, which is, James is in Israel Studies, Volume 14, Number 3, from mm. the fall of 2009. Excellent. And uh, it's one of the most brilliant articles I've read in a very, very long time. I absolutely loved it. So it tells you a little bit about the fascinating history of Tel Aviv. Um, from its founding in 1906, where, where, the, where it was parceled out according to a seashell lottery. Amazing. Gosh. Um, some um, remote sand dunes were parceled out, and it was built in a Mediterranean style um, to provide the sort of luxurious living of a Mediterranean style in this Middle Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern landscape, essentially. And it was built at a time of... Um, the real interest in garden cities so lots of space lots of greenery and that meant lots of balconies and the really fascinating thing about it is how the balconies of Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv have changed over time and I've really really enjoyed this um, what's brilliant about this article in particular he takes you through all of the different periods um, in Tel Aviv's construction, whether it was the first one in the first decade of the 20th century, onto the 20s and then the 30s, and how the balconies are always there, but they're always slightly different. So we start off with houses with balconies open 
onto the roads, but they're single story buildings. So you almost walk through, it's like a porch, a big long porch. And then it changes as they start building up with what they describe as hanging balconies. So these are usual balconies hanging over the street from two and three stories up. It changes then with an economic crisis in the 30s and the 40s, when the balconies become much plainer. But the key thing is that they're always still there. Now, one of the things I loved about it so much is the discussion of how the balconies were used and how that use changed over times, because it really made me think about what's happening today. First up, they were used for communicating, which is really, really interesting because there was no intercom systems in buildings in the early 20th century. So people used their balconies to call one another. You've got calling and whistling was happening a lot. There was this sort of soundscape of Tel Aviv with kids calling to their friends up or down below to go and play, mothers calling them. So a lot of interaction between kids and parents on the balconies trying to get everyone together. Um, there was a popular kids game at the time where they'd make you know, a bit of string with two yoghurt pots in the end. You'd make a kind of um, a, a, a primitive form of telephone. Um, they'd do that from balconies across each other. There weren't any elevators. There was not the technology or the welfare to actually build elevators. So balconies were used to hoist goods up or to lower things down from the balconies. I absolutely love that as well. Um, and then you've also got what's happening nowadays, this balcony functioning as an alternative theatre. So there's no television, but there are people regularly entertaining each other from their balconies. After a bit, um, I don't know, mid 50s, 60s, 70s, a lot of these balconies are closed in um, and they then become these extra little rooms sort of stuck on the side of the house. So what was once a balcony then becomes a study as the way that people in, uh, inhabited their flats and that their kind of living styles changed over time. So there you go. I, I love this idea of the way that the, the balconies in Tel Aviv changed and how they're still very much a defining characteristic of, of this city. Uh, and it's made me really want to go to Tel Aviv. You should Shiny. go. You should yeah. go. What a terrific end to the show, Sam. <laughs> I, I really, really enjoyed this one. What's fascinating about it is the way in which the balcony has this fascinating history that it has evolved in all sorts of complex ways as it's interacted with people speaking from balconies or looking up to balconies. And what we're seeing now is a sort of postmodern sort of... Um, interaction with the balcony as during the COVID-19 crisis people are using balconies they're rediscovering their balconies in a different way and certainly to hark back to the article uh, with which we started I certainly uh, am coveting those people with balconies I, I wish I had a balcony yeah, and it makes everyone, you need to do some research into the history of Tel Aviv in the 1920s. It's brilliant. It's genuinely fascinating. So, guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, do please check us out at historiesoftheunexpected.com. Um, you can follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us at Unexpected Pod. We hope that you are enjoying uh, this mass of new episodes that are flooding out to you during lockdown we hope that you're getting something out of them and that they are in some way helping you to put up with the boredom and tedium of life when everyone is inside 
And if they are, please just let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes. It really makes a difference. It really helps out. And uh, we're going to be recording some more kids stuff. We're enjoying doing the kids ones. Um, we are doing slobbering, aren't we, James? We are doing slobbering. Homeschooling yes. James the first. Yes. Uh, looking forward to that. All right, guys. Thanks very much for listening. See you soon. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.